I think the reason why so much of us hate change is because change makes things difficult. Change makes things that you already know how to do difficult. Um, I haven't been up here to preach for a while because I've had some changes in uh, just in, in some things that have happened uh, that where I did not feel that I was in a place where I could represent Christ well to you. Some hurts, some heartaches that have been a part of uh, my school community uh, as a teacher. And so I've had to take a little bit of a break before I could come back up here. Um, I'm going to be really honest with you. The last two years as a teacher has been really hard. I can't imagine how it's been for those of you in the health industry. It's been a rough couple of years, hasn't it? Things have been very difficult. Difficult in a general, systemic way, but very, very difficult for me personally. These are some of the hardships that I've experienced. And in less than a month, almost exactly a month, um, it will mark two years uh, since, since everybody went to online school. Now, I know that right now, some of you are getting triggered just by hearing online school, right? I say the word Zoom, and you're like, no, right? Whatever it is. Uh, and I remember, I remember that day so clearly um, because uh, nothing went right that day. It was a day where every 50 minutes, we would start again and face the same technological obstacles over and over and over again. Uh, so the first day, I had all my f- five classes that I teach, and I, uh, my, my computer froze five times. So it's always a bit of a gamble when you're out of the virtual classroom, whether when you finally get back in 10 minutes later, anyone's still going to be in there. And I remember really clearly, uh, the very first day, one of my students, a senior, a baseball player, um, he was sitting outside. And I'm like, that's lovely. It was March. It was a nice, beautiful day, sitting outside. I'm like, well, I guess there's some perks, right, to being home. You get to sit outside on your back patio, enjoy some sunshine. A couple weeks later, though, it was snowing. And he was still outside in a jacket, hunched over with an umbrella, trying to keep out the snow. And it was at that moment that I understood something's not quite right. Something's not quite right. So I, after class was over, sent him an email, and I said, hey, when you get a chance, can you give me a call? At the end of the school day, he gives me a call, and I'm talking to him, and I'm like, tell me why you're outside. He's like, I'm sitting, I, don't, I don't have Wi-Fi at home. What? I, I don't have Wi-Fi at home. Okay, then where are you sitting? He's like, I, I've been, I, during the spring break, I, I drove around looking for a Starbucks who had forgotten their Wi-Fi on. What? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I, I, I sit outside at the Starbucks, and I bring my, I bring my folding chair, and, and they, they put the chairs away, but they left the tables out because the tables out are heavy and they're chained to the ground. So, so I just, I just bring, I just bring my folding chair, and I sit at the table of the Starbucks because they left their Wi-Fi on. It, it was in that moment. I, I still get a little choked up. Holy cow, it's been two years. And he's doing great, by the way. College scholarship, he's playing baseball, he's doing great. But he was not doing great. Because you see, when we have that major change, things were made exponentially more difficult for him. And so after conversation with him, I got off the phone, I called the school, and I went, whoa, hey, we gotta, we got to figure it out. we got to figure this out. And, uh, and, I, and most of you know that I teach at a, what's considered a very wealthy school. And if that's happening at a really, really wealthy school, how much more so? So I'm not trying to get political right up front, like, geez, Sutton, like, right, pace yourself, wait till the end or something, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to, to get political. I'm just telling you that when there was this major change, we, we, we had some difficult things to sort through. And what we know is that in that moment of difficulty, a lot of biases and assumptions are revealed. My biases and assumptions were that no one at my school is going to have a problem with this. We're all just going to be annoyed, potentially like gain 10 pounds, but no one is real. like, this isn't going to be a problem. And then when I called the school to tell about this situation, they're like, oh, Rebecca, you have no idea what we've been dealing with. Change brings difficulty. And, and, and when you have to adjust and adapt, some things don't go really well. So the sermon title is, Let's Not Make It Difficult. So just keep that in mind, okay? Just keep that in mind. All right, let's go to the next slide. I don't have my clicker, so thank you. Uh, let's start with some positive news, right? Today, our, my sermon is coming out of three different passages out of Acts, and let's start with the good. Let's start with the positive news. The positive news is that um, just right after Pentecost, after, after the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and Peter kind of rises up into leadership and preaches the gospel, many, many came to faith in Christ. By the thousands came to faith in Christ. And there's this really beautiful picture that's painted for us by the author, Luke, about how it, how it was to be part of this new community of belonging. And he says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. It gives you a picture of of Eden, of the Garden of Eden all over again. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. We have this beautiful picture of unity, of generosity, of kindness, of consideration, oneness. That's in chapter 4. But by the time we get to chapter 6, 
Next slide. Uh, difficulty. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, two parties are represented here. Two different subcultures, if you will. Both groups are Jewish, but two subgroups. I want to remind you, for those of you who forget, uh, that the early church was comprised primarily in its infancy stages of Jewish followers of Jesus, right? Ethnically, they were Jewish. But what we have already here in chapter 6 is even within this group called Jews, there were two specific subcultures of Jews. And I want to show those two for you. So in the next slide, we'll see that there's two groups Okay, the Hellenistic Jews versus the Hebraic Jews. Notice that I said verses. I didn't even mean to. But anytime you put two things side by side, doesn't it kind of create this verses mentality, comparative mentality? And I want to show you the reality of the two groups. The one uh, is the Hebraic Jews, right? These are the ones who live in Israel. They spoke primarily Hebrew. Um, and so they're very insulated. They circled the wagons. They're very insulated. They're hanging on to their culture. They, they're, they're rejecting outside influences, especially Greek and Roman influences. Um, they are trying to, to follow the Torah perfectly. They're trying to follow the rules just so Okay? Because the legitimate fear is that if we don't follow these rules, God will once again remove us from our land. And so they're doing their very, very best to make the most out of a difficult situation. And the way that they're handling the difficult situation that they're in is by insulating themselves, cocooning themselves. The Hellenistic Jews... And this comes from the word Hellenism, which means Greek influence. Think Helen, right, of Troy. Uh, Usually lived outside of Israel. But what are they doing in Jerusalem? Well, they came to faith in Jesus. So some of them have decided to stay and see where this is going to go. But some of the Hellenistic Jews who spoke primarily Greek, um, they often assimilated the Greek ideals with their Jewish identity, so there was more of a combination. So they felt different, looked a little different, okay? Um, And so uh, they they embraced the Greek influence, they learned from the Greek influence, and so, uh, but they're all Jews. Same ethnicity, same group of people, but something, something's wrong. You see, the needs of one are overrepresented, and the needs of the other are underrepresented. And so, thank God that the disciples, the apostles, listened to this complaint, responded with action about this complaint. But you kind of wonder, don't you, how did this even happen? So I want to act out a little scenario. It's been a while since I've done any acting, so hang in there, okay? Um, let's say, right, it's distribution of food. You're going to a food bank. You're going to get served a meal. 
and, and you show up, and uh, I don't speak Greek, um, barely pass Greek, let's be honest. Um, Dr. Blomberg's not here today, so I can say that. Um, so, so, but let's say, let's say that you go to the dis- distribution center, and everybody there speaks a language. All the volunteers, so kind, so warm-hearted, they're all speaking a language, and you're coming to get food. It just happens that the, the, you speak the same language. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? How are the kids? How are you handling? Because you're a widow. How are you handling it since Tom passed away? Oh, it's been hard. Here's a scoop. Yeah, it is hard, isn't it? Well, is there anything you need? Yeah, you know what? My kiddo over there, he's really struggling with some digestive issues. I think, I think can, can I have a little extra rice? Sure. Poof. And you go to the next person. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, man, they, those oranges look good. Here, take two. Same language. Just natural affinities are in play. Connections are in play. Right? Same culture. Same background. We feel comfortable with one another. Um, but what if everybody there speaks a different language from you? And you speak English. And once again, I don't speak Greek, but I speak Portuguese. So we're going to act this out in a foreign language. Be ready. Hi. Bom dia, vem pra cá. O que você precisa, amor? Por que você precisa? Food? I would like some food. Claro, comida, claro. Tá, tudo bem. Põe um pouquinho. Um, my, my son is struggling with some digestive issues. Can I have a little extra rice? Can I have more rice? Você quer mais? Por que você quer mais? Não, você só pode um, hein? Só um. But, but my son can only eat the rice. Can I have a, just a, a little more rice? Só um, hein? Só um. Você só pode comer um pouco, porque tem mais. Olha o resto das pessoas. Do you see? Just for having a different culture, a different language. Um, it's kind of well-intentioned. Everyone's well-intentioned. But when you can communicate, when you speak the same language, you create relationships. You give the other person the benefit of the doubt because they're explaining their situation to you. But when you're not understanding what's happening, whoa, whoa, are you trying to take advantage of me? Whoa, whoa. You can only have one scoop, one scoop. We see, we see that our biases we go to the next slide, please. We see that our biases block belonging. We're not even trying. We're well-intentioned. For goodness sake, we have a food distribution center. We're all set up, ready to take care of the needs of the people. It's the same people, same race. But, but because we have these 
small little differences, they reveal our biases. And our biases then block opportunities for relationship, block opportunities to belong, block our voices from being heard. You see, our biases keep pieces out of the mosaic. So let's move on to the next story, and that next story is in Acts 10. We're moving now from a story of two groups within one major group to two very distinct groups. So we're looking at Acts 10, and this is the very famous story of Peter receiving this vision. It's the blanket, right? Uh, Poor Peter, he doesn't know what to do with bacon, right? But he's being offered food, that has been in his paradigm of what it means to be a person, a covenantal belonger to God, uh, that these foods are prohibited. And, and there's this really important moment where, where Peter's like, not me, I'm not eating that. I'm, I'm a good person. I follow you, God. I'm not eating that, right? And, and the voice in his vision says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And that's, a, that's the beginning of a paradigm shift for Peter. And while he's having his vision, about 35 miles north of him, up the coast, a Gentile, uh, the word there, Gentile, in Greek is the word ethne, a person of another ethnic group, the other, right? So, so this, is, this expression Gentile sort of shows the contrast between, am I a Jew? Yes, are you a Jew? No, I'm a Gentile. So they're completely separate groups. You're either one or the other in the mind of a person, of a Jewish person from the first century. And so we have here Cornelius, who is not only is he a Gentile, he's, he's also a Roman centurion, but he's a God-fearer. In other words, he's been attending synagogue, he's been giving charitably, his heart is directed towards the God of Israel. And there's this beautiful moment where Peter has to make a choice. Do I enter into the house of this Gentile? Do I go into an unclean space? Do I go into an an impure place? And so this vision prepared him. You see, God was already doing what needed to be done. God was already moving in ways that Peter was having a hard time keeping up with. But this is really, really important. So Peter goes, and he sees what's happening. And if we could go to the next slide. He sees what's happening, and you see his response. He says, he says then, was he, when, once he goes back to Israel, he has to defend himself. Can you imagine? He has to defend himself And he's telling the leaders, the elders of Jerusalem, he says, so if God gave them the same gift, the Holy Spirit, that he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Who was I? Notice 
notice how far Peter has come in a very short period of time. All of this is new. All of this is different. Sometimes when we read scripture, we think like, okay, chapter 10, right? Uh, and then we get, to, we get to the next chapter. That must have been like 15 minutes later or the next day, right? But Peter stayed in Joppa for a while. He went up to Cornelius. He then has to defend himself once he gets to Jerusalem. Word has spread. The, 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 the gossip has spread. People are waiting for him in Jerusalem like... When are we meeting? What happened there? Explain yourself. And you kind of see Peter like, yeah, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? You see, next slide. Um, Favoritism. Favoritism gets in God's way. Favoritism gets in God's way. We we need to pay attention to this. Because we don't see this, do we? Playing favorites. I'm a teacher. Let me tell you, it's so easy to play favorites. So easy. A mother of three boys, so easy to play favorites. Isaac, so easy to play favorites, right? Probably because that kid, you get that kid, right? You understand them, or maybe they just, they, they just delight you. You're just delighted by them, whatever it is. But what happens with favoritism is that it gets in the way then of everyone and everyone's voices being represented, if I'm, if I'm constantly sending my favorite student to go run an errand for me, what am I communicating to the rest? Favoritism gets in God's way. So now we're going to jump five chapters forward. And when we jump five chapters forward, we're probably jumping about... 15 to 20 years forward in time. We're now at what's called the Jerusalem Council. And at the Jerusalem Council, you would think that this issue would be resolved by now about the whole Gentile, non-Gentile, Jewish Christians, Gentile. You think this would have gotten resolved? You think that that whole vision that Peter had 15 years before would have kind of settled the issue? Right? His statement of faith, I'm not going to get in God's way, that that would, have, that would have settled the issue. The fact that Paul had already with Barnabas been on a missionary journey and all of these uh, non-Jewish people are coming to faith in Christ, you would think. They've got 15 years to deal with this. 15 years to get their heads around this new paradigm that God has. But biases are stubborn, aren't they? They're stubborn because we're blind to them. Favoritism sticks because there's just some people we like better. 15, 15 years to get a handle on this, and they don't. 
And so once again, you have a meeting in Jerusalem, but this, at this time, though, more voices are called to be represented. There's a little more representation in, at the Jerusalem Council. You can read it in Acts 15. But the issue you see that they were struggling with is, do the Gentiles... Do the ethnes, those of other nations, tribes, and languages, do they need to be like us, the Jews, in order to be saved? Do they need to be circumcised in order to truly receive salvation? And for us, this sounds like a very awkward conversation and kind of a little bit bizarre. But for them, everything was on the line. Who's in? Who's out? Who's in the kingdom? Who's out of the kingdom? And so Paul gets up to speak. Barnabas gets up to speak. Peter gets up to speak. The prophet Amos is called in uh, through his writings to represent. And if you read the passage... Not sure how it really proves any really point significantly, um, but Peter nails it. Okay, Peter, who um, Paul is just just about to write a letter to the Galatians condemning Peter's duplicity and hypocrisy. So Peter, you know, he chops people's ears off, but then sometimes he's brilliant. God, who knows the heart, this is Peter speaking at the council, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them. How did he show this? By giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. He, God, did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. It is his work. We just get to participate in it. We just get to be the ones who move the kingdom forward from generation to generation. But he, he purified their hearts. He did the work. So Acts 15 ends with a letter that is sent to all the churches, Jewish churches, Gentile churches, mix of the two. And it ends up with four, um, four abstainings, if you will. And, and it's, it, it's hard to sort of explain them in a context for us today. But the basic point of those four is that together, those four, if everyone kind of sticks to those four parameters, then everybody, everybody can come to the table. Everyone can worship the Lord. Everyone can then participate in the potluck after the service. And it also opens the door for the Jewish and Gentile young people in the church to marry one another and form a new community. And so we see that sameness, next slide, that, that sameness. Um, 
that, that sameness is a problem. Because look at how look at how James handles the situation. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Let's let's not make it difficult. Turning to God is already a wrestling of the will. We, we don't have to add more to it. To change everything about who you are and your identity and, 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 and what you're going to be about is already difficult. Let's not, let's not add to it. Next slide, River. The kingdom of God is not about sameness, but about oneness. But gosh, isn't this tricky? Because isn't sameness easier to enforce? Doesn't oneness take a little bit more effort? So I want to end with a couple of things. So I'm going to go through. So the next slide, please. How do we make it difficult for people to turn to Christ and stay in Christ? How do we make it people? How do we make it difficult? Um, we make it difficult. I'm going to tell you, I've been at this church for a long time. Uh, we've been in seasons at this church as a family where we've made things real difficult. So let's not pretend. We've made it real difficult. And we are in a culture and in a world right now where um, we make it real difficult in ways that the New Testament leaders could never have imagined. We make it real difficult. So what's your move? How do you put yourself in the text? It's one thing when we're looking at what is happening, right, 2,000 years ago, and we're like, good grief, can't these people just get their act together? Really? A surgical procedure? That's what's going to make this happen? So let's bring it to our context. I've got some questions for you. Things for you to consider. Now, for all of those people who who preach sermons, you know that uh, when you're making a sermon, you've been sitting in these questions for a while. So I just want to move my discomfort onto you. Get it off me and just move it onto you. So welcome. Welcome to my misery. Okay. Uh, Take a look at your biases. Who are you not seeing? Who's, who's holding a plate in front of you that, that you don't know how to fill? Or you don't even see that they're holding a plate. You don't see that they have a need. Who, who are you not seeing? Number two, it's, it's a really good idea to just get out of God's way. Um, so how, how are you resisting what God is already doing? How are you resisting? And, and I'll tell you how you know you're resisting. When Kyle, which I did not coordinate that with him, by the way, okay? So, so don't think that we conspired. But when Kyle asked some really hard questions about who's the person next to you that rubs you the wrong way, how are you resisting 
You, you see, the thing that happens about how when we're rubbed is we get smoothed out, right? When you rub a stone, it gets smoothed out. It's really good for us to be in contact with people that rub us the wrong way because it forces us to look at some parts in us that are bumpy, that are problematic, that needs the Holy Spirit's work of smoothing and shining and polishing. And number three, I think I would say is particularly difficult for me especially. Um, And that is to listen to the testimonies of those who are other. Listen to the testimonies of those who are other. Um, My sister-in-law is other. She is Hispanic um, and German. And um, her mom is uh, Hispanic, but in that interesting sort of New Mexico, Native American way with, um, with the conquistadors coming in um, and the Mexican influence. And she's, she's uh, experienced, um, unfortunately, quite a bit of discrimination in her life. And she tells me the story of when she went to visit her grandmother, her German grandmother. Her German grandmother, all the grandkids were there. Um, And her German grandmother called her and her sister out of the picnic to clean. Because they, they were the Hispanic girls. And I'm going to tell you something. The first time I heard that story, I got so mad. And she, that's just one one of her stories of otherness. And when we listen to the stories of otherness, that, that means that, that their voice is now present, that, that they're now receiving what they need, that they're being acknowledged, and that you're putting your biases on hold. And it helps us fight this natural tendency towards sameness and allows us then to embrace oneness in Christ. So let's look for ways to promote belonging and representation in lonely spaces. I'm going to tell you, that's a lonely space to be as a little girl when your grandma calls you to clean the house and everybody else is out in the yard playing. It's a lonely, lonely space. We create lonely spaces in our churches. So how can we promote belonging and representation? I need to wrap this up. I got so much more to say. But I think officially that would be me talking. So I'm going to wrap it up. So I told you that my sermon is, let's not make it difficult. But my last slide is, let's not make different difficult. I'm going to let that just sort of sit there. Lord Jesus, Lord, you know that I've been on my own journey in this and how you have softened my own heart, my own biases, my own assumptions. And Lord, you know that I am 
I am preaching to myself here this morning. This is not this is not a message of condemnation. This is not a message of shaming. This is a message of, of just a, a sincere desire to just open our eyes. To have our eyes open to the realities that are that are there, to just be a little bit more self-aware and self-reflective in a world that, that has no dignity, that has no, no real dialogue. Lord, that you would call us not to sameness, but to oneness so that all the pieces of the mosaic are represented so an accurate and beautiful picture of your kingdom is represented. We pray for this in the name of the Savior. Amen.